I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. Neha Roosh is somebody whose career I've been following closely over the past few years. She started a blog and social media called Mother Untitled, and it's really about reframing and redefining what it means to be a stay-at-home mother, to be ambitious, to look at that gray area between career transitions and to own it, to not feel shamed about it, to deal with what it means to come up and question your self-identity when you either choose or if you have the privilege to choose to stay at home with your kids. And over the course of the years and with the pandemic and with exorbitant childcare costs, that conversation has really shifted in many ways. And I like the fact that she is trying to break down stereotypes, where they come from, how they feel, how they're self-imposed, and how it's not a binary. It's not in the workforce or out of the workforce or taking care of your kids or not taking care of your kids, that there's so many gray areas that it's so fluid within what that means. And that's something that the second shift has been dealing with from the very beginning, giving women the optionality that it should be a choice, that this should be something that feels good in whatever space that you're in and that you can have agency over your own life, raising children, not raising children, working, not working, and doing it with emotional honesty and with vulnerability and with confidence. Parenting is an active world that you live in. And I see that, like we we were just talking about having older kids before we started this. And I see that as like, when you have older kids, it's actually different and harder parenting Mm -hmm. because it's actually like, okay, you pee on the potty. Yes, that's like, it's physical. But when the kids are older, it's like, you're still in it. You're in it totally different. It's not physical, but you're just in it. You're exhausted. It's mentally, they're mean to you. They're, Mm -hmm. you know, they have agency to do things. And you're like, I'm actually like guiding you to be a person. Yes. And I think, I mean, it's interesting because it lends to sort of the narrative shift that I think for so long parenting has been diminished to laundry or like the physicality of raising children when in reality, there's so much intellectual and emotional labor and growth through that, right? Like I think that it's both one of the most surprising, challenging parts of parenthood, but it's also the most under-discussed and undershown in all of the memes that surround motherhood. And I think if we start talking about that intellectual labor more, I think we actually elevate parenthood as the training ground that it is. Because I definitely think, I mean, the personal growth that I've found in parenting and raising children who have their own sort of needs and personalities and temperaments that, you know, are both inspiring and challenging is that I've had to dig in deep to do my own personal work, right? And that personal work and perspective has made me better in the workforce than I could have ever imagined being. And I think if we start talking about that work more, parenthood starts becoming really interesting, not just as like 
something to put on the resume as a campaign, but as something that genuinely employers can respect and think about as empowering experience to add to the workplace. So, okay, to just touch on this, your personal journey that led you to start Mother Untitled, because everything comes out of your own personal journey. The second Mm -hmm. shift came out of my personal journey of being like, okay, I have these two kids and like, I have this career and I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with it now. And at the time there weren't really tools available to figure out how to get jobs. And so it was really just like, who's going to hire you and what makes you saleable if you don't want to do what you did anymore because your life isn't the same or you're not the same person or you've moved or childcare is too expensive. Whatever the reason, how do you transition into being a different version of yourself? Hence the second shift. So how did you go from workforce MBA to mother untitled and author? So I was put in a decade in brand work, had an MBA from Stanford. The expectations were high, both of myself and from sort of my peer cohort family system. And I had landed what I really did feel was the dream job, right? I was running brand at a hot tech startup. If you got married in like 2012, 2014, everyone knew it. It was called Zola. It's still around. Um, And it was fabulous. And it wasn't as fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. That sort of collided with family planning and having my first son. And I was sort of rocking in the armchair, you know, in the nursery late at night. And I just felt like this wave of contentment. And I won't say that like, you know, having children is not challenging. I'm not going to look at it with rose colored glasses. Like I, my boobs were leaking, all the things were happening. And yet I did feel like I finally found this sense of peace that I was really looking for. And I decided that I wanted more room for that. I decided to downshift initially. So I shifted into consulting two days a week and the rest of the week I was at home and I got gobsmacked by all of the stigma surrounding what it means to be an ambitious woman and either pause or downshift your career, right? Like I heard from family members and friends, like that's what you're going to do with your MBA. I thought you, you know, are you going to be bored all day at home? And meanwhile, at home, I was feeling feeling honestly more creative, more confident, more connected to women than I had felt in a really long time. I was looking around the Flatiron, which is where we lived then, and I was meeting so many incredible women who were making their own pauses and shifts, right? They had a decade of career experience. They were in finance, they were in fashion, they were in media, they were in healthcare, and they were all saying, you know what, we're wanting more room for our family. So we're either going to shift into consulting, we're going to shift into part-time, we're going to start our own ventures. We're going to take a full pause and trust ourselves that we can return with confidence. And none of it mapped to the character of the stay-at-home mother that we were being fed and the stigma surrounding what it means to be a stay-at-home mother. So at that point, I paused to create really the first representation of what it means to be a modern ambitious woman and make room for family life. Mind you, that was when the lean in movement was really loud and the girl boss era was really big. And I did feel like media lacked representation of what it meant to say, I'm ambitious and I want to slow down and make room for family for a period of time. And so, you know, there's a great irony and obviously starting a platform about career pauses while you're on your career pause. So at first it really was planting the seeds for it. And it was 
a blog and a social media account chronicling the different workplaces and different women that I was meeting that were redefining. I think I actually spotlighted the second shift at one point back then. I think that was like 2017 or 2018. And it was really about doing my own research along the way. And then 2021 happened and both my children had aged into school and the pandemic had really forced more of a cultural reckoning and re-examination of work and family. And I felt like the timing was right personally, culture was you know, ready for it. And that's when I started dialing up my own investment into the platform from a time perspective. And that's when I wrote the proposal for the book. And I always say, timing is everything. If I tried to sell this book in 2016, 2017, culture wasn't ready for it. I think we are at such an interesting moment in time where I think everyone is re-examining it and everyone is ready for, okay, what would it look like to have a more fluid narrative about what it means to take a pause or a downshift from your career? I think about this and I'm wondering, what do you think, you mentioned the narrative around stay-at-home mom. And I question that a tiny bit because I, I know that feeling And I had the feeling. And I think sometimes I'm like, I don't want to blame it on an external source when a lot of it is really internal. And maybe Mm -hmm. we're taking that, we're taking the messages from society and from culture that, or maybe like, we're just smart, educated, ambitious women. And it goes against the grain to sort of like, take yourself out of a comfort zone and say like, I'm not doing what I thought I was going to do and that's okay. And Mm -hmm. to like embrace a reframe instead of blaming it externally on something else. It's like, there's a lot of work that has to be done internally in that moment Mm -hmm. when you hit a bump in the road or, you know, a detour. So do you think it's really externally that, 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 that this is all about like what we're being fed or do you think that this is something that is, you know, we need to take responsibility and, you know, authority over in ourselves? Well, I mean, a lot of the platform is about giving us the language to take back the narrative and recreate it for ourselves. But we are redefining it because there is a narrative that's perpetuated, right? So if you look at, I mean, it dates back to really the 70s and 80s. And you're, I mean, if you're really going back into history, right, we created archetypes. And a lot of the archetypes that were perpetuated in media started around the 1970s, 1980s at the advent of television, right? You looked at like some of the models and you see a June Cleaver type archetype, right? And that was the advent of television at the same time as the big push around feminism and women in the workforce was happening. So what happened was we created a power chasm between stay-at-home and working mothers where anyone who was deemed a stay-at-home parent who was not entering the workforce or not participating in the workforce was deemed traditionalist and sort of pegged with the archetype of, let's call it June Cleaver, because that tends to be when pulled the archetype that comes up most frequently in like American sentiment. Whereas women in the workforce were getting a lot of media and attention and 
the 1980s, 1990s happened and we saw the advent of the mommy wars and that was completely fabricated by the media, right? Like everyone loves a cat fight. And if you like date back into both television and print journalism, there was like a nexus point there. And we created this power chasm and we never caught up to date with the fact that as women were having children later, education uh, had more access to digital tools for ongoing learning and part-time work, there was a new character emerging. And we never properly replaced the woman who was choosing to pause or downshift with a more current image. So what when women did say, wait a second, like I do feel like I identify more with I want to have more of an identity in the home and I want to spend more time with my family where they inherited that tug of war or where they inherited that tension, internal tension was they had been told and they had inherited a feeling of if I'm going to succeed, if I'm going to consider myself ambitious, the only version of ambition is in the workplace. And if I choose to step back, I'm traditionalist. I'm not feminist. And I'm, you know, at home with an apron strings, but there was no middle ground that they were, you know, that they were able to identify with. And so having to say, I'm going to recreate that definition for myself. I'm going to recreate a definition of ambition. I'm going to redefine success for myself does take gumption. It takes personal work and it takes having to set aside the sort of cultural stigmas and cultural representation and saying, that doesn't apply to me. I'm going to forge a new path that works for myself. It also takes not believing the clickbait and the headlines because yes. I have a real problem with, like you've said, the mommy wars. These are these are things that pit women against each other that allow men to move past and succeed. Or keep the status quo. Because if you're creating a dialogue in which you're feeding guilt and shame to women and pitting them against each other, and it's a false narrative. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, there are a lot of women. I mean, I think you said 62% of women in in the study that you did that I want to touch on in a minute left the workforce because of expensive childcare. Like we don't live in a world in which it's also a choice for many people. That is mm-hmm. what you have to do because you have to survive. And then there's a privilege in being able to make that choice. And then to feel shitty because the the headlines are telling you that all, oh, well, you're going to be mommy tracked. Mm-hmm. Oh, if you have to leave, you're ruining your life. And it's like, well, thank you. But that's not really a choice I'm able to make. I live in a situation in which it doesn't make sense for me to go to work in the structure of the way the world is built right now. So tuning it out and having realistic perspective of what life looks like and what you can and what you are able to do and then feel good about yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, actually exactly what you just said. And I'm so glad you brought that up because let's just take that one trope right? The trope has been stay-at-home motherhood is a luxury. And so then women who choose to pause and or don't get to choose to pause are put into a position where they're 
making a decision, regardless of whether they felt forced or they had the privilege to choose to be at home and they feel guilt and shame because this thing that they're doing, this immense unpaid work and labor that they're doing in the home is considered luxurious. And that one trope prevents women from then asking for help when they need help. It prevents women from being regarded with respect for the work that they're doing because they're perceived as sitting around eating bonbons. When the reality of the complexity of the decision to pause a chapter of caregiving is that there is financial and economic angles to that decision oftentimes. And families are making and households are making a very conscious decision to allocate one person's time towards the unpaid labor. And if we can really reframe the language to be really about, no, the privilege isn't to get to stay at home. The privilege is to get to choose, right? And for some people, that privilege is to get to choose to stay in the workforce because they can offset the cost of childcare for their household. For some people, the privilege is to get to choose to exist in between, but the privilege is to get to choose. And I think when we make it about that and not say that either side is luxurious, then we're better able to say both sides deserve support. You know, historically, when we've said, quote unquote, and I really hesitate to like further this language, but quote unquote, working motherhood needs support and needs attention and needs scaffolding and childcare policy change. Then we've sort of alienated and counted out this entire cohort of women who also deserve support and also deserve a reexamination of cultural scaffolding such that we can support those women get the economic dignity for staying at home and be able to support them when they transition back to the workforce, which is what, you know, you've done through your work so nicely. And we just need to see more of. So talk to me about the study that you did, because there are some really interesting findings where you pulled all of these women and found about, you know, women, mothers, work. Was there something that really jumped out to you that you thought like, aha, this either validate something that you believed or something really surprised you? I think the sheer volume of women who are considering a pause or a downshift, right? So one in three women, not stay-at-home mothers, not part-time stay-at-home mothers, but quote-unquote working mothers are considering a pause in the next two years. One in two are considering a downshift of their work hours. So when we think about it that way, what it does is it really opens up this population to all mothers, right? Like working mothers, stay-at-home mothers, women in between, it is fluid and it's a constantly evolving state. And I think that it really begins to put a stake in the ground that stay-at-home mothers can't be counted out of the women in work and family conversation it is all much more fluid than it has been previously considered. And, you know, when I think about this work and why it's so important, it's to be able to dignify a chapter at home focused on caregiving such that women are then better able to transition back without penalty. And I think if we're able to recognize just the sheer volume of women that this impacts, we're better able to support and study this group of women that have previously been counted out of the conversation. So I think that was probably the most validating, exciting piece of data. I think the 
part that really pulled at my heartstrings was the 30% of women who had never gotten any amount of help, including family assistance. That includes no grandparents, that includes partners, that includes not having the neighbor down the street come watch their children for a few hours. I've interviewed over 200 women, both for the book and through the community. And I think the one recurring invisible thread between all of the conversations is that women often, when they step into doing unpaid work and they step away from having a salary and or a title, they immediately think if we don't do paid work, we don't deserve help. And that concept, the concept that we can assume that any person can do a job 24-7 without support is such a flawed belief that holds women back in such a significant way. And that it disempowers women from investing in their health. It disempowers them from investing in their community and their future potential work opportunities. And I think that if we can start to really assign value to unpaid work, assign value to the fact that this work is immense, it's not just physical, it is intellectual, that these women do deserve support, whether or not they work for pay, we unlock so much opportunity. So I think that that piece really stood out to me as, yes, validating. I think it affirmed a lot of what I hear anecdotally. I think the sheer volume again of women who had never tapped into resource and support was was saddening. We think a lot about success and redefining success. One of the things that was also hard to read and you know, I think this applies to all mothers, but we saw women say that they, you know, obviously see their children's health and happiness as a metric of success. We saw that they rank their own health so infrequently that it was regard it was at the same level as like having a clean house right so the fact that we would put sort of everyone else's health and happiness before our own brings up the question how do we take care of our families how do we raise physically healthy children if we're not physically healthy or mentally well as well. And so, you know, it starts to all really shine a light on how do we empower women to prioritize our own health and wellness and give women permission to invest in themselves during this period of time. I I think that brings up a very interesting conversation, which is the piece about women, self-confidence, identity, self-worth, that I have seen and been calling out for a decade about how fragile it is, particularly, I, look, I can't speak for men. I'm sure it's equally fragile, but for women, it's so fragile and so much identity becomes tied to ambition and to achievement. Mm-hmm. And when we are working, we understand the latter and the marks of achievement and success. And then the minute that job winds up not becoming our identity anymore, we lose all of the feelings that you had. And it becomes this like morass of who am I? And Mm -hmm. I I don't think anyone's ever going to hire me. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. And we just immediately cut ourselves down and dismiss all of the achievements that we'd had before. And then you have children. And so you tie, it becomes tied into your kids. And if you do that, then they grow up and they become people with agency. And then again, you hit a place where 
it becomes a morass of who am mm-hmm. I and what is my identity? And we take ourselves down. And so in each sense, I know this is the work that you're trying to do in your book, which is the power pause coming out in a year, but still mm-hmm. let's get people excited because it's about planning into a career break, planning into here are the things that could happen. Here's how this could feel. How are you going to handle it? And I just think that is so smart. It's one of the things that we really work on at the second shift is like reframing this whole idea of what it means to be successful. Yeah. And I also think when I follow the arc of the book, I think one of the biggest things we take on first is the identity piece because it is the part most women grieve, you know, and I think in a culture that has often conflated who are you with what do you do, right? Like we lead with what do you do? And, you know, women will report that that is the single biggest stumbling block when they step into a career pause is, you know, and I remember it. I remember it so vividly. I was sitting at a club in Soho. My kids were splashing around in a pool and someone said to me, oh, what do you do? And it was the first time that I had to say stay-at-home mom. And I couldn't get the words out because it didn't feel representative of everything I had done previously. And it felt so loaded with the stigmas that we've discussed, right? And so finding the language that speaks to what you've done and the opportunity of what might come and to answer that with dignity is a big challenge for women. And I think we glean so much identity from our titles, from our salary as markers of like, oh, I run brand at a startup and that should signify that I'm creative and that I'm, you know, plugged in and that I, and it sort of stands in for all of these values about who we are. And so when you're challenged to step away from that title, you have this real opportunity, even if it feels like a challenge at first, you have a real opportunity to figure out, okay, who am I without this title, right? Like, what do I care about? What's interesting about me? What areas do I have to grow? What areas and opportunities do I want to explore now that I'm not beholden to any one track? And I think if we can reframe that as a real possibility and a real optimistic place to sit, I think it stops feeling like you're cut off as soon as you part with that title and it starts feeling like, no, this is an opening. And it does take a moment for women to be able to reconcile that part of us. If you, let's say you were a Googler, you were in marketing at Google, like you didn't stop. Those skills didn't evaporate. You can still identify with that. And then how can we add to that with whatever happens next in this, whether you take a break for two years, three years, five years, what are those you know, personal goals you can set for yourself? What are those routines that you and rhythms you can establish in the home front? What are the ways in which you can engage in your community in new ways through caregiving that add to the experience you've assembled prior so that when you return, and this is the work that you do so well, you have a real portfolio of experiences that you're bringing with you. And I think helping women to really step away from, okay, I had a ladder and now I've stepped off of it to I had a set of experiences and now I'm going to add to it is just a different reframe that we really want to help women to be able to adopt. But then we really want culture to be able to absorb, right? Because in an ideal world, and you know this better than anyone, we get to a place that hiring managers are able to look at 
two resumes, or I'd like to think of them as portfolios of experience and not necessarily discount one for having had non-traditional experiences for, you know, two to five years. Is your book going to be more of a manual on how to keep your identity, confidence, worth, all of those things, not feel the guilt, the shame Mm. at bay when you're in this pause? Or is it more of a manual of like, here are the things that we're going to do so that you are going to be actively engaged and be able to shift into a job if that's what you want or need to get one? It's both. So, you know, it follows, it follows the arc of, you know, women choosing. So really being able to step in with clarity and confidence, right? Through finances, through identity blocks. So it sort of tackles that first part. And then, you know, really embracing the time at home such that they can move past some of the things that hold them back, the guilt, the shame, to set their own new metrics of success, to give them permission to get help, to set up routines that let them thrive too. And then ultimately to be able to sort of move past some of the confidence blockers and guilt and shame that keep them from investing in themselves to unlock their network, unlock creative opportunity, and then obviously help, you know, really assemble the story at the end so that they're able to hold their head up high when they're interviewing, if they choose to, when they're, when they're returning. A year from now, when this book is coming out next January, can we redo this and and uh, continue this conversation so that we can make sure that all the women who need this step-by-step guide have access to it and we can highlight all the things that you're doing because the work is very important. And, and just to close that, you know, I believe firmly in what you're saying. And I'm a big believer in life is, is chapters in time and it isn't linear. It doesn't just go from one point to another. And especially for women, it's like part of the beauty of being a woman is being able to be more fluid in the way that we think about our lives and childhood. And there's like a softness to it if you're willing to embrace it. And I'm always reminded of Nora Ephron. If you haven't seen it, you have to. She did a commencement speech at Wellesley in the 90s. And she talked about how your identity as a woman will shift. And if you labeled the three things that you identified yourself at at different decades in your life or chapters in your life, they would completely be different. Mm. And I love to think about that because even you and I were talking earlier, having children, the different phases of life they're in and how that gives you agency and time and grace to do different things that you might be able to do. So having this ability to positively reframe the places that we are in our life and be kind to ourselves is important. So I appreciate you working to help women do that. Thank you for saying that. You know, I think it's so interesting when we were talking about parenting, one of the big tropes is also that women only choose to pause when they first have their children. And actually you're seeing such rising rates of like women choosing to pause when their kids are applying to college because that's when it takes up all of the headspace or the emotional. And I think that's one of the most fascinating parts of parenting is we're growing up alongside them. 
right? And so it asks of us different things and more time and different time and different strengths. And so it is such an evolving conversation on so many different levels. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women. 